That's like my number one rule. I will never purposely be vindictive or do something to truly hurt someone, and that's it's just not in my DNA. And knowing that about myself, um, I've really had to force myself to learn how to just not care what someone thinks. Next interviewee we have is Chloe Alpert, the current CEO of Medinas, a data-driven exchange platform that helps large healthcare organizations monetize their surplus and short-date medical supplies. She is awesome! Yay! Um, so I know that you are the co-founder and CEO of your own company, right? Awesome, yeah. So um, I'm currently the CEO and co-founder of Medinas which is a data-driven exchange platform that helps large hospital organizations re-monetize their surplus and near-expired goods. So we can help a large hospital sell its surplus to a low-income clinic or a nursing home at a heavy discount, which creates double-sided cost savings, which really helps our healthcare system save money, helps give people who might not have had access to care um, lower costs or just access to care that they didn't have before. And so, Um, That's one of a number of companies uh, that I work on. I actually own two profitable companies on the side, and I um, actually have Medina as my number one focus right now. Dang, Um, that's awesome. (laughs) What a a great boss. Oh my God. I have to admit, I geeked out on you the other day, and I saw the article in Forbes where you uh, mentioned that you were awarded $500,000 to use unused medical supplies. That's so great. Tell tell me about that. It was fantastic. Um, yeah, like we really were just starting to kick off fundraising here this autumn and uh, that competition came across my plate and I just said, okay, like, you know, this looks like we're a really good fit for this. We might as well apply. And so I put the application in um, almost a month and a half ago. And then it was last Tuesday that we got a call at like eight or nine in the morning from Forbes just saying, hey, so you're a finalist, you're pitching in Boston. And the entire team was just shell-shocked and couldn't, really couldn't believe it. So, you know, right away, we, we booked tickets, we booked a hotel, went off to the Forbes Under 30 Summit and ended up pitching. Um, and we won, which was pretty surreal. It was, a, it was a really good time. And it was nice because the entire team was there. So it was fun to be able to go together as a team and really kind of show a united front. And, you know, we got to meet the judges. And now we're, you know, we're really excited that first money in is from – such high caliber VCs as like Sound VC and uh, General Catalyst and Rough Draft. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, congratulations. That's really incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Did they make you hold one <laughs> of those fun. gigantic checks? <laughs> oh, yeah. I got, I, I've been joking. I'm just like, yeah, I got to hold a check and shake hands with Ashton Kutcher. Put that <laughs> on my LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> you should. You should. That's so yeah. amazing. <laughs> it was a good time. Oh, it was my really God. Yeah, That's the judges fantastic. were all really lovely. I really liked it. And, you know, they asked very good questions. They all um, kind of leading up. They did a lot of research. They really grilled us on stage. So it was a lot of fun. That's really fantastic. Wow. That's what an honor. That's so great. And just to see that, you know, actual um, companies are getting funded that make a real impact in the world uh, warms my heart because there is a lot that is not oh, warming my heart in the right way right now. It's, I'm just like angry yeah. all of the time. So I'm so happy yeah, to hear exactly. that. I am going to jump into, um, you know, our questions about gender disparity and, you know, stuff like that, that you've seen throughout your career. 
mm-hmm. as a founder or as an owner of several companies, you know, how have you seen this um, in the industry? Have you seen it? Have you experienced it personally? And also, have you seen any differences in how women are treated in different positions, like engineers versus founders or other positions? Yeah, I mean, yes to all of the above. I've seen tons of differences. Um, my entrepreneurial journey has been very interesting. So I'm definitely one of those people who, you know, starting businesses and solving problems is a compulsion. It's not really a path I chose. It was just baked in the cake. And it's something that I've been doing literally since I was five or six years old when I was selling stickers to my neighbors. Um, um, my first venture-backed company, um, I was 21 through about 23, 24, and that um, we actually only raised $150,000. And I remember during that fundraising process, um, I would go to the same VC as a friend of mine. I would have so much more revenue than them, but I'd be asked for, you know, 10 and 15 year projections. I'd be asked to do all of this just like fishing work that my male counterparts who had, you know, half the amount of revenue were, you know, weren't being asked for. And, you know, that company actually ended up going, like we just made a ton of mistakes and it, it failed. Um, but it also failed for a number of reasons where, you know, I was a 22, 23 year old female CEO. Um, I wasn't really getting the same kind of support that I, I feel that a lot of, you know, young men in my position would have been getting. Um, and we actually ran the company for that long off of revenue because we just, it was just impossible to fundraise for it. Um, and so that was a really interesting experience because coming out on the other side of it, um, I was horrifically depressed. I really went through a full year of, um, kind of withdrawing from the tech and venture community just based on some of the, you know, sexism, unconscious bias, and just unfair treatment that I'd seen. Um, And what was the the biggest thing that I find very interesting, kind of talking about the theme of failure, is that I had a male co-founder, and the failure of my first company was treated as his almost biggest success and treated as my, like, biggest ultimate failure. And I couldn't help but realize just how different that was received. Um, You know, he got all the credit for the work he had done at that company, whereas I was basically considered having the inability to execute or I was, you know, it was like, oh, she's a terrible leader. She doesn't know how to execute. She doesn't know how to do X, Y, or Z. And it's, that was, that was something I struggled with for a very, very long time. And so the other two companies that I own, um, I completely bootstrapped. I, I didn't take a penny of investment dollars. Um, and actually, when I was closing my first company, I went into negative $30,000 in debt in order to close that company and pay all the lawyer costs to do that because um, my co-founder abandoned the corporation. And so um, wow. coming out from that, um, I launched a soap company and an API company. And um, I remember in the 11th hour in December 2015, I had negative $30,000 and I had just enough cash in my bank to pay my rent. And you know, I'm very fortunate. My parents um, are in a place where they could have helped me, but I wasn't, you know, for me, I felt that it was my journey. And so when I launched the soap company, it did um, over five figures in 36 hours, which paid off all of my debt. And well, that's fantastic. It <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very, it was for me, I realized, because I actually thought I was going to grow that company, the soap company. And then I realized um, that soap company wasn't about a startup. For me, that was about proving to myself that I knew how to build a company. I knew how to make money. I knew how to do this. And so I actually um, ended up letting that company just sort of go on cruise control. And it makes a little bit of money. Um, I'm never going to grow it. I might sell it someday. And then the API company has grown to seven figures in revenue. 
and both of those are completely bootstrapped and I let those run um, quietly and privately and I've had investors come to me interested and I've, I've just said you know no this is this is mine and I'm working on this if I'm 100% owner and I don't have a board to you know work with that's you know I'm able to really prove to myself that I can do this and so then you know kind of coming into um, end of 2016 I realized you know okay I know how to uh, um, build a company and do these things but I was still pretty down because I had really isolated myself from a lot of the venture community just because I was actually kind of afraid of going back out and um, experiencing some of the predatory behavior that I had um, and really just not being taken seriously or, or talked down to and so I ended up going to a company called Teespring where you know I had a really mixed experience because there were a lot of really wonderful people there. Um, and then there were a few not so wonderful people. And um, this was also a company that was going through a little bit of a tough time. And so, um, you know, I think as a lot of tech companies, they have sometimes difficulties with um, women in tech. And I can see them trying, but, you know, there's still, there's still areas of, you know, I would say something and then, uh, it would be completely ignored and then someone else would say something and it was taken seriously and it was just this consistent thing. And so part That's of the reason so I took that job was I just, <laughs> yeah, part of the reason I took that job was I wanted to meet some new people. And that's actually where I ended up meeting my co-founders for Medinas. Um, they're all Teespringers. And uh-huh. um, yeah, and what I'm really excited about is um, this team that's come together are all very, very hyper aware of issues for women in tech and unconscious bias. And that was something in my first venture backed company that failed. We couldn't really talk about like my co-founder wasn't really, didn't really believe me that that was a thing um, and like wouldn't take me as seriously. And what's really great is that I trust my current co-founders just with everything and they understand it. And we're already working through tools when we walk into a room everyone assumes our CTO is the CEO because he's the tallest white guy. Um, wow. And it's ironic. And for him, you know, I've, we've talked about this and he finds it hilarious and he doesn't even realize it because he, he said to me, he's like, I just know you're the CEO. It just doesn't even cross my mind. And so um, I work with a coach out of New York. Um, her name is Jennifer Ianolo. And I mean, we're going to do a couple sessions with her where it's like, Hey, you know, how do we, when we walk into a room, and everyone starts shaking Tim's hands and thinking he's the CEO. How do we pass that off gracefully? How do we, you know, show that balance outside um, to really, you know, help it? But it's—I have to say, you know, kind of—I've been a little nervous coming out of the gate with a venture-backed company because it's a very different scenario. You have to deal with investors. You have to deal with the board. And you know, I'm the youngest person and the only female in our company, so. It's, it's definitely um, a very, very different world for women, and it's, it's scarier, it's more difficult, and it's, it's just tougher. Um, so I think any woman who's setting out on any sort of an entrepreneurial journey, especially one that um, deals with investors and is taking that startup model, um, you know, there's a little bit of you have to be twice as good or be so good they can't ignore you, and that's, that's hard. Yeah. I mean, that's the understatement of a year of the year. It sounds very, very hard, Uh, you know, but first of all, I just want to say congratulations for 
um, almost immediately getting back out there and like you said, running your own, your own gigs for a little while and kind of getting yourself back out there because man, it would have been a real shame if we had lost you <laughs> early oh, on there with that, with that first experience. It also sounds like your first uh, co-founder could use that coach that you're about to work with in New York. Yeah, I think well. we're all young and we grow. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. So did you have like a, a turning point moment, you know, throughout this process where you said, you know what, as, as you know, nervous as it makes me, you know, to kind of walk back into this predatory behavior, as, as you called it, um, I'm going to do this anyway, because I believe so much in my idea. I mean, what really got you to that point where you're like, I'm going to do this even though I'm it's scary and hard. So I think um, a lot of the doubts and like, I work with a lot of, of female founders who are either peers or like people like pseudo mentor. Um, it's a lot of insecurity. And I think a lot of young people in general have insecurity. And um, I think some of the best advice I've gotten from someone who's very close to me just said, look, you just can't care what they think of you. And you can take that in one perspective and that can actually be a little dangerous. So there's kind of an extension of that. And I, for me, I look at it as, you know, number one, I will never purposely be a jerk. That's, that's like my number one rule. I will never purposely be vindictive or do something to truly hurt someone. And that's, it's just not in my DNA. And knowing that about myself, um, I've really had to force myself to learn how to just not care what someone thinks. Because it really just kind of comes down to, yeah, there's going to be someone who's going to look at this blonde chick surrounded by a bunch of guys and think that she's the token girl that they put on the pedestal to help them get some, you know, diversity capital. And you know what? I can either change their opinion by being who I am. And if they still doesn't change their opinions, what does it matter? And so long as I know at the end of the day that I worked hard, I'm a good person and I will never, I always try to be a good person and I can own my mistakes and own my fallibility who cares? And it's really easy to say, but I think whenever I encounter a situation where I catch myself with that fleeting insecurity, or I really feel that kind of emotional rise in me, I just go through this mental process of saying, okay, you know, does it matter? You know, does it truly matter? How does that affect you? How does that change anything? You know, this person isn't willing to see the truth. This person isn't willing to look at the data. Is that really your problem? Do you care? You know, if, they're not going to. And at the point it's like, you know, I can only control my reaction. And it's a tough exercise that I think over a very, very, very long amount of time I was able to achieve. I really do think that it took me about two years to be able to get to a point that um, I can do that in a functional way. Um, it was really a journey to get to that point because I still have moments where something will happen and I'll just think, oh my goodness, you know, they think I'm terrible or, you know, it doesn't matter all of the good things I've done, you know, because of this, they think I'm awful or, oh, my first company failed. They think I can't execute because this person said I couldn't, you know, like it's, it was really just a long process of, you know, heads down, hard work, just realizing that, you know, people can be shitty and there's nothing you can do but control your, control your own reaction. And what's tough is like, I have seen women fail and they kind of disappear and, and, a lot of people in the startup community will write them off and really won't bring them back into the circle until they've done something again. And it was very funny for me just because I saw how after my company failed, you know, my male co-founder didn't really have much of a problem being accepted because he was the guy. 
Whereas I was the girl and, you know, people just thought, oh, they wrote me off. They just realized that, you know, her company failed. She's not interesting anymore. And um, despite the fact that I had owned, you know, I still own two operational companies that are profitable um, and I keep those very quiet just to kind of see who is interested in me as a person. Um, and then, you know, kind of going forward now, Forbes kind of outed us. We were going to be in more stealth mode. It's fascinating to see who comes out of the woodwork now. Um, oh, so I bet. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. It's a very long process of just, you know, heads down, hard work, you know, good morals and just not caring what other people think. So for all the women out there who will listen and, you know, say, oh my God, that sounds amazing, but how do I even start that two plus year process of, of being able to separate from that and let go? I mean, do you have any advice for like, what's one step you can take to kind of get in that mindset? Yeah. Working with my coaches, um, I think has really helped me. And what I really like to do is focus a lot on my weaknesses and, you know, I, I think that you should always have a balance of focusing on your weaknesses and your strengths. But really what I did with some of the coaches I've worked with is just identify my major weaknesses. And what I'll do is, you know, I think the first time I worked with a coach, I identified three major areas that I was very, very weak. Um, I interrupted people a lot. That was really difficult. Um, I wasn't a great active listener. And then the third thing was I emotionally reacted to a lot of the information given to me. And so we kind of identified those as the three biggest areas I needed to work. And I think I was 22 at the time. And so we focused immediately on the emotional reaction one. And I think for a solid year, all I did was just prepare myself for, okay, I'm going to walk into a meeting and I'm going to get bad news. And I have to catch myself when I feel that emotional reaction. And so I think what a lot of people do is they, they try to solve all of these things at once. And it's really not going to be possible to do that. And I think for me, really focusing very specifically on one skill at a time and really honing in on that weakness and spending all of my time, you know, in six to eight months, I was really able to make a change in that weakness. And, you know, even right now, I'm specifically working on um, not interrupting. That's still something I struggle with. And I, I think it's because my mind works quickly, but it's the number one thing I'm only focusing on right now when I go into meetings with my team is just really making sure that the second I feel the urge to speak, I, I, you know, stop myself. And because I'm only focusing on that one skill, I'm really able to make movement on it. And so that's the biggest thing that a coach will do with you and kind of been given the tools by some of my coaches. I'm able to work with my team and say, hey, what, I've, what have I been struggling with? And they're like, oh, you know, you interrupt. I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on that. And when I catch myself, I say, hey, guys, I'm sorry. I'm specifically working on that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the advice I give everyone. And it, it's tough to kind of really be open and brutally honest about your weaknesses but you really are only as strong as your weakness and if you can strengthen those you know you you just get that much stronger for the folks out there you know you mentioned unconscious bias a lot which i think uh we all deal with do you think that there is a way you know other than the individual kind of learning to work and develop on yourself and not care too much about those moments that happen. Is there something we can do on a broader scale as women together to help fight that? I mean, what's your perspective on that? That's a great I don't know what women can do independently. Um, the only solution I feel like I've been narrowing in on so far is having really incredible co-founders who really look at all of us as a team. Um, and as far as dealing with that unconscious bias, it really 
helps being able to walk into a room with my team and know that we're a team and really demonstrate that to the people in the room. And then they're really able to see that, yeah, you know, they defer to where the knowledge came from, or, you know, we give credit where credit is due. And I think, you know, investors can't help, you know, investors really can't ignore the, the really good chemistry and the fact that we have that really strong respect amongst, amongst each other. And I really have to credit my co-founders for taking that as seriously as they do. They, they really, really have embraced um, the perspective that I've given them on, you know, this is why it's difficult and we're going to walk into this meeting, look for this, and then they notice it. And they've, instead of just noticing it, they've really worked with us as a team to take steps to help. So when we kind of step into a situation, we're really seen as a unit. And so I think that's the beginning of it. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, it doesn't matter how strong you are as a woman, you're going to be outnumbered by men in tech for the most part. And like I said, sometimes people just decide things about you that you just can't control. Um, and I think... You know, I think it really kind of starts with the, the younger generation that's coming. You know, they've really got a choice. And as they become the leaders of tomorrow, they can either decide to be a part of the solution and really, you know, look at the people they work with uh, based on merit, you know, or they can perpetuate the problem. And so right now, I think it's really just, I've got a, an amazing team that I'm working with. And it's an amazing team that, like, I'm willing to go to bat for, and I know they're going to go to bat for me. And that's, that's what I think is kind of the start. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the sexism and kind of gender disparity in tech, but there has been a lot of media attention lately around the culture of sexual harassment, particularly in Silicon Valley. So many women have been you know, much more willing to speak out about that. Have you seen that in the tech world at all or known anyone that's experienced that or even just read any of the media that's, that's been out on that? What are your thoughts? Um, I'm a statistic. Um, I've been a victim of it and it's something that I keep private. Um, on purpose and you know I don't know if it's something I'll ever really talk about with names but um, what I think is really distressing is nearly every female founder who's raised venture that I know of I would say that a good 60 to 70 percent um, have a story and are a statistic and you know they're all varying levels of severity um, mine was on the more severe end but it's really frustrating God, because yeah I mean it was something that I think contributed to my depression over that, that year. Um, and it, sure. it's something that I, it's really tough because how do you kind of change humans? And I, I think that, you know, I also feel, I try to look at it from both sides because I, I know that I've been the victim of, you know, people talking about me. And I really wish that when I've, when I've had people talk poorly about me, that that person would have, tried to put themselves in my shoes and so when I think about maybe a VC or something um, assuming innocent intentions you know they might encounter this really spectacular woman who's raising venture and say oh my goodness I've never seen someone as amazing as this and then the lines blur and I feel bad because you know in the situations where it's innocent you know it's still unprofessional and it puts the woman in a very very unfair position um, and then, you know, you do have a lot of people out there who are predatory. Um, my situation was predatory. And it, it's really sad because I, I never thought that I would be affected as much as I was by it. And it, it, it was a major reason why it took me almost a year to kind of get out of depression and find myself again. Okay, and yeah. it really frustrates me when I see people who minimize it when, you know, I don't think women are asking anyone to throw themselves on the floor or grovel, but I do think that 
there's so much data. And, you know, if we can just look at the data and build processes in place, you know, that's all we can really do. And, you know, I feel bad when I, I actually speak with young female founders. I say, look, this may happen to you. I'm like, and if, you know, your spider senses are tingling, talk to someone. I didn't talk to someone and that was my greatest mistake. And it's scary. Um, but, you know, I think I look at the women who are speaking up and I know how difficult that was. And I really commend them for what they've done because I think it's going to get easier and easier. And I think, you know, accountability is going to get more widespread. Um, but I do think that it's really a, a pretty big problem. Um, and I think there are a lot of women who kind of look at it as just a part of the job, which is pretty messed up. And, yeah. you know, I really would like to see it change. Um, you know, and I've just really been trying to think about, you know, what is the best way to bring women together um, who have either already experienced something like this or, like you said, maybe founders of the future who just have to sort of be forewarned that it is a likelihood to happen. Do you happen to know of any resources or would your advice just be, you know, reach out to someone who you trust in the community? I mean, what is the best way to go about talking to someone if, if when it's happening or even after it's happening? Well, I think what was fascinating for me was that um, I was 22, 23 when this was happening. And, you know, despite the precociousness, um, I didn't have enough life experience to really recognize how wrong that was, you know. And sure. for me, at the sure. time, I really didn't have a lot of strong female mentors. Um, all of my mentors at the time were male. And, you know, they're like, oh, don't worry about it. And, you know, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, like, it's, it's just a thing. And, you know, this, it was much later, it was after the company closed that um, one of my batchmates from 500 Startups, um, she's older, she's, um, you know, married with children, and she's actually, you know, kind of merged, her name is Cynthia Shames, she's the um, director of growth or marketing at Cocoon Cam, um, sold her company, but she, she's really become one of my mentors, and she was one of the people who really helped me get through that um, after my company closed, and I really look at what I would have been able to do had I had her as in, a, in that mentor role when that stuff was happening. And so sure. I think it's, it's super important for, um, I think, especially young female founders to be able to have someone who's, you know, lived, who's in their 40s and 50s. They've lived through this. They, they really were the beginning of paving the way for this. And, you know, it's a safer space to speak with and can really help you understand, you know, this isn't normal. You know, that that isn't him just being nice, that's crossing a line. And that was the thing that was so shell-shocking for me was realizing that, you know, there were lines being crossed that, you know, I was putting aside for the good of my company. And um, I really credit having strong female mentors now to helping me navigate moving forward. And that's something that I really hope for a lot of, you know, female founders. And I mean, I mentor a number of younger you know just out of school female founders but I'm still in my 20s you know I've been fortunate that I've lived a lot of life in my few years but I don't have the same experience as someone who's 55 and has been the VP of a major corporation sure. and so it's those women who I know um, had to fight so hard to get to where they are and they're so busy and there aren't as many of them to go around but if there's any way humanly possible, I'd love to see them taking on younger women a lot more in that mentorship role. So I think um, Y Combinator has just launched a female founder social network called Leap, L-E-A-P. 
Um, I believe the URL is leap.ycombinator.com. Um, I just got invited a couple weeks ago, and the community is very, very young, but I'm really excited to see it grow, and um, I'm very committed to supporting them however I can. Um, I just, I got invited to it organically, but, you know, I think that's really the beginning of bringing women together um, and really just being not afraid to put yourself out there. Um, but other than that, yeah. I just have to say I'm I'm really excited about the future of Medinas with my team and I'm just so grateful for all the people who are involved so far because they're they're truly wonderful and I feel like I've got an amazing support system. Oh god, yeah. And we're just so thankful for the work that you're doing both for women in tech and also for the community with this company. Thank you. And it, um I'm so excited to listen to more of your podcasts and thank you so much for doing this. And last, but certainly not least, we have Stephanie Hurlbert, an incredible woman doing really amazing things. Um, so thank you so much for being here today. Um, and Stephanie, why don't you go ahead and, and just give us a quick introduction. Tell us about yourself. Sure. So uh, thank you so much, first of all. Uh, it's so amazing to be on here, and I'm really excited about this podcast in general. But um, I, I run a startup with my co-founder, Rich Geldreich, and we make an image compressor. So if you think of JPEG or PNG or any of the images formats you use now, we make an alternative to that. that. And the advantage of ours is it actually stays compressed on your GPU. So that means it's like six to eight times smaller than JPEG would be on your GPU. GPUs have even less memory than CPUs, so it's, it's a huge deal. Um, so we're very excited about that. That's, that's what I do. <laughs> I've been doing that's this for going on two <laughs> <laughs> So I've been doing this going on, uh, going on two years now almost, and um, um, also like just enjoy meeting other startup founders and being active in the community in general. Before that, I worked in tech. I worked at Oculus building virtual reality demos. Um, I worked at Unity, which is a game engine that fuels a lot of games doing graphics optimization. Um, and I worked on art installations at a small company called Downstream. Um, so I'm programming and then founding a startup is what I, what I did. Um, Thank I, you. I, I'm kind of like fangirling over here a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That's so nice of you. Do you feel that you currently work in a male-dominated environment, or, or what's the kind of culture and environment that you work in now? Well, my current environment is just me and my co-founder, who's a guy, but it's just the two of us, so it's <laughs> it's 50% women, which which is great in my current company. Um, and we've hired uh, like a junior coders and stuff in the past. And actually, they, all the coders we have mentored and helped grow um, very closely as a part of our company happen to have been all women as well. So, uh, so cool. within my company, it's it's been good. But the industry in general is crazy male dominated. Like I. <laughs> Most of my customers are, are men, um, unfortunately. I always, I, I love my badass lady customers who have great compression, but a lot of them are men. And so, and um, we're part of professional organizations and we go to a lot of networking events and most of those are men. I think, I think C++ and like low level computing tends to be even more male dominated than the rest of the industry. Wow, that's yeah. interesting. I didn't realize that. I mean, with compression in particular. Um, 
how do you see that changing over the next five to 10 years? I mean, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but in terms of image compression in general, I mean, how do you get more women clientele or women involved in that particular field? Um, I just, I, I've noticed kind of patterns within my career, like my whole career, like I, like I, I started college wanting to be a mathematician and then I changed to computer science and my whole career people were like, don't you want to do design? Don't you want to be like a front end coder? Don't you want to do art? And I've, I've had to tell them every step of the way, no, I like back end. I like math. Like I'm not a front end coder. So I think, I think a lot of that. Pushed, wow. um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and- lead, lead. <laughs> And you think that, what was that? Yeah, was that like specifically because you were a woman? Do women typically get pushed to front-end design? Oh, absolutely. I think it's also just the way I present myself. Like I I always wear like, you know, feminine dresses and um, I guess I I look the part of a a designer um, to most people. And I'm sure a part of that is just being a woman. Yeah, but a lot yeah. of assumptions going on there. You can have great fashion design and be an amazing back-end designer, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> to have absolutely. <laughs> oh, obviously. In fact, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, oh no, I was just going to say, in fact, I think math is extremely creative. And I, I wish more people saw it that way because um, I feel like creative and visual people in math really add a lot and there's not enough of them. Um, You know, so just kind of going back to what you mentioned with the gender imbalance um, in the tech industry in general, particularly, you know, when it comes to leadership and engineering roles, do you think, um, you know, or in which ways has this disparity, other than what you've mentioned already, had an impact on your experience, on your career, or do you have any thoughts on how or have you seen how this impacts women of color, um, possibly in a different way? Yeah, um, with women of color, I, I do a lot of mentoring now just because it adds fulfillment to my life. And I, I specifically try to mentor women of color more. And I, I'm constantly appalled. Like, I've had a hard time in the industry. I've had a lot of bad experiences. But women of color have it even more. Like, I have this one, um, this one woman I'm mentoring who just, she's just a badass at whiteboard interviews. And I hate them. I can't, I can't pass them. There's, I, like, I, I really hate that whole structure of interviewing, but she's great at it. And she gets comments like, you solved this too fast. You must have been cheating and things like that, that I would never have gotten. Like people would underestimate me, but they would never add that extra, you know, extra wow. layer of discrimination. So I've, I've been really shocked personally at, at how much racism is also in tech. And it's been, it's been kind of disgusting and eye-opening for me. So I've been really working on recognizing that it's hard for women, but also taking a step back and realizing that it's even harder for, um, for others. Absolutely. And, and are you doing mentoring through your company, you said, or do, are there any particular organizations, you know, in San Diego that you're working with that kind of have that as their mission? I should be. Um, I just moved to San Diego a few months ago, so I'm still settling in and getting to know the tech scene here. But um, no, I just do it. I just do it casually. I have a, I have a lot of, um, a lot of followers on Twitter and I get a lot of messages and people asking for help and such. So I, I kind of just do it in my spare time through that. 
That's so cool. <laughs> I love that. Oh, that's, that's, really, that's really, really great. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I think also something kind of that you just mentioned with the kind of extra layer of discrimination, a lot of women working in tech have mentioned feeling like they must constantly fight, you know, a believability factor. You know, basically there's an obvious and unconscious bias that, you know, they aren't knowledgeable about engineering, that they don't have the same technical skills. Um, and you've seen different la layers of this. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, what, what can we continue to do to make that go as far away as possible? <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, if I had the answers for that, I, <laughs> I, would, I would love the answers to that. I actually, I have no idea. It's something I've been battling a lot. And um, like the way I handle it in my current company and the, what I do now is I just, it's, it's different when you own your own company as opposed to like looking for employment at these tech firms. Uh, so what I do is I have tons of customers I can choose from and I, believe it or not, I do experience a lot of sexism in some customer meetings. And what I do is they're always potential customer meetings because after I experience that, we keep our distance, you know, and we, we put them in a lower priority and we have a hard rule of we don't do hard sales. We don't really push people or get aggressive with people. And we also only work with nice people. <laughs> we try, we, we think that as a small company, that's really important. And if, uh, if someone is really sexist in a meeting, we won't necessarily say we're not going to talk to you anymore, but we will put them at a lower priority. And that's, that's really helped me be more surrounded by friendly people and, and people who don't treat me that way. It's, it's very tricky because, um, you know, some of the people who are the worst are also the biggest deals. They are the worst because everybody puts up with their sexism and their bad behavior because they're so powerful. So it's, it's often not like the little guys that, that are really bad. It's, it's the, big, the big deals that, that just have this ingrained in their culture. So it, it, it sounds intuitive, but it's not. It can be very hard to walk away from certain deals or deprioritize them. Wow, that is really intimidating. <laughs> I can't imagine yeah. that type of decision. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm fortunate in that my uh, my business partner Rich, he's like just as if not even more feminist. He, like he's very feminist and he's very like he he rants after these meetings more than I do. <laughs> And he's like very passionate about like, we like, this is wrong and we need to change this in this industry. So having his support makes it a lot easier. Oh, that's so great. How did you guys find each other? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we actually found each other through talking on Twitter one day. Uh, he, he had posted something about um, how a certain company was so great and he loved it. And it was a company that I happened to know was, actually pretty sexist and, and not great and so I, I actually just met, messaged him out of the blue and was like hey I think I think your article was a little off you, you don't know a lot about this and he was super open to it and he was we just had a great conversation and kind of hit it off as friends and also had the same exact interests and eventually founded a company together yes see discourse works that's so awesome <laughs> it does yeah, it does. I believe it. <laughs> uh, that's really great. But I'm sure it doesn't hurt to have 
um, you know, a male co-founder that can, that is a feminist that can support you and making those decisions in making really big clients like that a lower priority. Like you said, that can't be an easy decision to make or a thing to initiate um, or navigate. I mean, my God, just all the communication around that. Um, I have a lot of respect for you guys for <laughs> making the effort. That's really great. And we're fortunate that we, at this point, we have, we're established and we don't, you know, we can kind of pick and choose our deals, which is part of what makes that work. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> obviously I'm sure you know that there's been a ton of media attention around the culture of sexual harassment in particular present in Silicon Valley. Um, thoughts on this any um things that you've experienced or witnessed kind of in this arena um are you empowered by the fact that lots of women um you know founders ceos etc are are making themselves known and speaking out against this or what, what do you think um it's definitely a big problem and i've experienced it firsthand uh, in several ways like i had a professor sexually harass me when i was in college i had a manager sexually harass me for months at one of my jobs i had uh, i've had sexual harassment all over in the industry like i've i've experienced it a lot and um i've even experienced it once or twice with potential customers which is just like appalling like why would you do that when you're trying <laughs> Like this in that not the best way. Yeah, not, <laughs> um, not the best. Way. <laughs> that is I'm not how you get that. a deal. That is how you don't get a deal. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> I, <laughs> I, so I've experienced it, and I think it's good that people are talking about it. Um, but I'm, I'm not. To be totally honest, I'm not. I'm not sure what steps are being taken to change that. I think it's good that it's being exposed and talked about. That is the first step. Um, but I, I, I hope to see um, things change in good ways. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, you know, other than maybe some of the lawsuits that have surrounded it, I don't know that there's a lot of activism necessarily or, like you said, steps being taken uh, um, to do anything. But I suppose at least the visibility could be seen as a good thing. Diana, I know you've read a ton about this. Do you have any thoughts or questions that you want to? ask about this particular piece yeah sure um yeah uh i mean i do I, i've been jotting down a couple questions actually as, as i've been listening and yeah um, jump in girl yeah sure um i was curious well you mentioned um that you have been mentoring other women in tech which i think is so amazing and i was wondering if if that was something that you benefited from when you were developing your career or, you know, in school um, and, you know, just, just if there's any background there. Yeah. So in, in school, I was, I was pretty alone. Um, I, I, like a lot of my classes were all guys. I was, I felt really excluded. Like, um, like it was always pretty awkward to go to study groups and stuff like that as the only girl, especially since they were very casual a lot of the time. Um, so I was pretty alone in school. And then um, in my professional career, I had this amazing mentor. His name is Eric Hackborn um, in my first job. And he, 
he kind of took me under his wing and like is basically the reason I'm in C++ now and taught me a lot and kind of showed me the value in having someone that spends that time on you and helps you. Like in this age, there's information everywhere. You can find a lot of information about any, any topic, but having someone just fill that for you and also provide that personal recommendation is just invaluable. So that kind of showed me. And after that, um, I, uh, I just kind of went on in my career and always remembered that experience and also remembered how I didn't have that for many years and I wanted to give that to other people. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, and that seems like, I mean, maybe one positive thing women in tech could start doing more of. Um, I mean, I've seen it myself, like, like you know, there's there's definitely a bunch of groups out there right now um, to kind of bring women in tech together. And it's really been amazing to see that and try and like, you know, participate in those. So it seems like one Actually, I think, I think um, another positive thing is I, I started this initiative, this mentor list. So it's this post where it has literally hundreds of mentors who are happy to give their time to help you. And the thing is a lot of women in tech are really, uh, uh, at least a lot of women in tech I know are very bogged down with a lot of requests and they, it's already pretty hard on them and um, they don't necessarily have a lot of spare, spare time, but men in tech do. <laughs> a lot of a lot of men in tech are like sitting and nobody's reaching out to them and they're doing all right. <laughs> so most yeah. of my mentor list is actually men in tech who I've verified as like oh, friendly people um, who you can talk yeah. to and I really want to get them connected with people to mentor. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, let's see. And then another question. I think Liz probably has some more questions for you. But one other thing I was thinking about was um, if you could do it all over again, would you still pursue a career in tech? Um, or, or would you give – or do you have any advice that you might give to your younger self or to a woman – just entering the industry. Right. Um, I think the number one, I think I would still go into tech. I, definitely. Tech is amazing. It is, it is one of the few fields where you can do something like start a successful company after only three years of experience. Like that's insane. Like that's, yeah. It's an amazing um, industry in a lot of ways. And they like negotiate, like I came from, I worked in retail for years. Like there's no, negotiation power like the kind that you have in tech like it's very it's very special and empowering I would give myself the advice to not put up with abuse um, in many different capacities like I I was actually when I was in uh, starting out in tech I was in an abusive re relationship in my personal life and I was tolerating a lot of abuse at work too just in various capacities if if my coworkers happened to be lovely, it was that I was working 100 hours a week and pushing myself in that sense and not pushing back and not standing up for myself. And I had this, uh, this mindset, like, if I just work hard enough, it'll all be okay. And I really damaged my health. And I really put myself in some bad situations. So I would, I would tell myself to not do that as much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's something a lot of people struggle with, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I've definitely yeah. been there myself. It, you know, I like actually yeah. copy pasted this on my little notepad. Um, you know, 
a couple of weeks ago when I was reading this, you, you mentioned this like in that benefits of kindness blog post of yours where you said you gave an uh, Nat Dudley reference where he made the point he or she, sorry, I don't know actually if it's a woman or a man, but um, made the made a point that a workplace is healthy when you see everyone questioning authority. And that like hits so, so close to home for me. I mean, I think um, in this industry in particular, um, I do find myself in meetings sometimes uh, just not speaking up because sometimes it's easier not to. Um, you know what I mean? And I, I feel very fortunate right now because I work in an environment that's uh, very much not like that <laughs> at all and very inclusive and not sexist. But uh, yeah, that really hit close to home for me because I, I think probably a lot of us, like Diana said, have really experienced uh, times where we haven't felt safe enough to question authority because we really um, have been in a harmful work environment. So I appreciate you, you know, commenting on that. Absolutely. And I, I would, I would tell someone to not default, like, you shouldn't just go straight to always question authority, because it might be that you could get fired for doing that. But what you should do is be aware and recognize it as something you should be able to do. And if you feel like you can't at your current job, leave, like start looking for other opportunities and at least have an exit plan. Like after a year, I'm going to and just just be aware that that is something that should be able to happen. Absolutely, and that's a that's a good call out. Yeah, don't <laughs> you don't need to question every single single element of authority and just go rogue. <laughs> Get yourself in well, trouble. But. Even, even not even going rogue. Like for instance, um, in the company that I had sexual harassment and all these kinds of things with, I was also working a lot. There were all kinds of workplace issues. I filed a complaint with HR because that felt like the right thing to do about some of the issues, and I got fired a week later. Um, wow. And so in that in that case, what I would have done is, and that was I was not going rogue. I was just like filing no. a standard complaint. <laughs> and so it's all. like, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's just um, you got to be really careful at some of these companies and. Um, and just get yourself to safety and focus on safety number one and um, getting yourself in a good place. And then you can feel free to, uh, to question and do everything you need to do. Well, that's really, really great advice. And yeah. God, that's terrible. I'm so yeah. sorry that happened. I know. Yeah. Disgusting. <laughs> God. Yeah, it was, it was really bad. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. I'm so sorry that happened. Um, I was curious if you had any commenting on, um, you know, just all of the things we've been talking about, um, but in the context of the VC world. But with VCs, uh, it's interesting because I've been a little removed from that world because one of the policies at my company is we do not accept investor money of any kind. It's just me and my business partner and that's, that's the only stakeholders in my company. And that has enabled me to have a lot of uh, freedom from potential biases in the VC world. Because I, I haven't experienced it, but I know there's a lot of bias out there. And you have to, you have to be really careful no matter who you are, just because VCs can be, um, if you get a bad VC, it can, it can really hurt your company. Um, they can be very controlling in general, even if there's no sexism or, or bias. 
So anyway, yeah, I, so I'm very passionate about enabling entrepreneurs to not take VC money and look at other routes for funding. And um, yeah, that's something I always try to help people with. That's great. What are, what are some of the other recommendations you might give entrepreneurs out there looking for alternatives? There's so many different ways to fund a company outside of VC. And I think tech is a unique space in that sense and that it's even easier. Like I don't need an office. I don't need a, a 50 person support team. Like I, I don't, I don't, I don't need a lot of things that other companies really need. Um, I just need people to, um, build the software and sell it, which is me and my business partner. Um, and so I, I would recommend, like one thing we did was we took contract work whenever money ran by, when it was the early days of the business. And we're both programmers and people need programmers. So it was kind of a really good fit for funding and we could charge a lot and then take some months off to go write our product. So that's what we did. I've seen people uh, shift to part-time in their job or um, just build prototypes in their spare time. Um, California and Washington State both have laws that say it's illegal to prevent someone from owning a side business or from, from owning the work they do in their spare time. So it's really, it's really possible to do something like that. Um, there's, there's lots of ways. I could probably talk about it forever, <laughs> but happy to answer follow-ups. That's great. That's really, really great. Yeah. I mean, at some point, I'd love to just hear more of your thoughts on that because um, I think many entrepreneurs, especially women, would be curious to find these alternative routes, um, like you said. So that's, that's really great. And I didn't know that about California yeah. and Washington. So that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like you can put it in the contracts that says we own all your work but it's void and it's completely unenforceable and a lot of companies know this it's not illegal to have it in the contract but they can't actually enforce it so definitely read up on the laws around employee inventions um, and I guess the other thing is it's it's good in general to not build too much of a product before you have a customer like we only spent two or three months building it out and then got a customer to essentially pre-order it and pay for us to add features. And what they wanted was different from what we had planned in a good way. And so getting money from customers, even before it's built, is a good way to know you're building the right thing. And also not take investor money. <laughs> so it's win-win. <it's laughs> yeah. Win-win, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. What about you, Diana? You got any final questions for Stephanie here? Before we sign off, I don't think so. I mean, I think I think that no, I think that really covers it. Um, thank I you mean, so I could much. I for Yeah, I know, I know. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but um, no, thank you so much, and, and good luck with your company. It sounds like it's doing amazing. It's so cool. Yeah, <laughs> happy, happy to. Um, and thank you so much for having this podcast and also having me on. Um, uh, thank you.